Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. Super excited about today's episode. We're going to talk about anxious attachment. Um, this is something that I have. I have an anxious attachment style. And of course, everyone is swimming toward secure. But um, I want this episode to be specifically on anxious attachment just because um, I think there's so much to talk about. And I think a lot of all the attachment styles and I want to kind of donate our time just to this specific one. Selfishly, because uh, that is my attachment style, but I think many can uh, learn from that. Okay, Jessica. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. It's so great. Yeah, thank you for being on. Um, I want to kind of get right to it, but I want to ask you a question. I ask all therapists, counselors, um, people who help people this uh, question, coaches. Why did you choose this profession? How did you get here? That's a good question. I feel like I had a couple other careers and I was a little bit lost and I don't regret mm -hmm. choices, but I felt like a spiritual kind of calling to help people initially with depression. Um, mm. I struggled with depression and anxiety myself. And I started working in the addiction field and I started really helping the codependent. So that's kind of how I moved into attachment and helping system issues. But I think I think through my own curiosity of what my own personal struggles actually with depression, it felt like I had a broken leg. It was so real, yet you couldn't see it. And so I've been always kind of fascinated with what you can't see that's mm. really going on and really helping people who are suffering in so many ways that you can't see because it was so real for me. So then I, you know, wanted to study every pathology that you couldn't see and, and just really went in that direction of mental health. How did you pull yourself out of the depression? <sighs> well, I mean, and I talk about this kind of concept. So I was living in New York City. I felt pretty isolated at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, through all the research and everything that I know is that we're biologically made to be in connection. And I think I would just didn't have community. And, and the lifestyle in New York City was hard for me. So I moved down to Florida and I lived with my grandmother who was very nurturing and a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And I started working with horses again. So I started to become more physical in my body. And I was more in an environment that was nurturing and supportive and structured for me. So, cause I had the catatomic depression. I mean, I was really depressed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think being around my support system and being around animals and things that just bring life to me, help bring me back to life and remind me what is actually really important and the environment and the people that we choose to be around or being isolated can really lead someone like me to depression. So I need to make sure that I have a lot of support of people around me. I'm in a nice environment and I'm doing things and connecting to people and, and things that bring me joy and uh, meaning. Yeah. I wonder if back in the day when um, we were more tribal, when, um, you know, there were villages and we were always surrounded by family community and that was just a way of life. I wonder if there was less depression then, you know, and now 
us kind of almost like living in capsules. Even in New York City where there's so many people and, you know, people are stacked on top of people, it could feel very lonely, right? Yeah, and I think there's actually a lot of research. You know, we live in a more left-shifted world. Yeah. Uh, we're competitive, we're more isolated, we're more, you know, we're geared up for what success might look like. And I think our ancestors lived in more community. And right. they allowed us to be more ourselves and part of the community at the same time. So there was just a lot more support. Even with raising children, there was aloe parenting. There were yeah. grandparents. There was a lot more connection in the right. environments and we in our modern world we have become islands and it's really really hurting so many people and you know I was only I was in my early 20s if I knew how important it is to be connected to community and who you're surrounded with and how much that impacts your mental health now if I knew that then I had to figure that out and I inherently had the wisdom to move towards my grandmother, who was a secure attachment for me, because she's mm -hmm. warm, she was warm and inviting. And so some part of my system knew, okay, this, even though it was like a leap of faith, I was living, a, I had an apartment, I had a job in PR, I had this whole life in Manhattan. And I was moving to like the middle of nowhere with my grandmother, but my body knew that this is where I needed to be because that I needed the warmth and the nurturing and the care to kind of get out of the depression. So it's, it's quite amazing as humans, we are, we are aware of what we need, but our society yeah. up for what we think we should be doing. Yeah. And I think we're such uh, we've trained ourselves to be so logical. Um, I love what you said that your body told you what you need. If we can drop into our bodies and, answer or give our body what we need it's a great radar you know it's a great um prescription it's a great blueprint instead we are very much in our heads and disconnected uh, from our bodies so let's talk about uh anxiously attached um you have a whole book on uh anxiously attachment yes there it is um why this topic which i love um and first tell us uh, about anxiously attached attachment. I'm assuming you have a personal story with it, and then um, then we'll we'll go. I want to do a deeper dive on that because that's where I'm also anxiously attached. Yeah. So you know, anybody who's well, I, attachment is a two way street, and they're really embedded patterns. And I love that mm -hmm. the label out there. But yeah, I have a personal story around like codependency and not really understanding what was going on in my body at different times in my life. And mm -hmm. I read a book I could get on codependency and they all were very helpful but it wasn't until I really started to study um, developmental neuroscience and how we adapt it to survive and I really got deep on the underpinnings and attachment that I started to see that attachment and ad adaptations are really how we show up in our relationships and that we get cued um, in different ways and I would say someone with anxious attachment has an underlying fear of abandonment so they have a preoccupation with keeping their partners close and they have, we talk about neuroception, but they have a sensitivity to anything um, that could that could be perceived threat of abandonment or disconnect feels, being in disconnection feels horrific for someone who has anxious attachment. Um, so there's a lot of strategies and adaptations and coping mechanisms that um, anxious people use but really they really struggle with a lot of anxiety when their partner shuts down or right. you know when they when they are not in connection it is very threatening and yeah. they sense that you know connection is inconsistent 
So I would say other, besides the other attachment patterns for anxious people, they have a sense of inconsistency. So they might be in connection with someone, but then their default is when is this connection going to stop? When am I going to be dropped? Mm -hmm. When am I going to be left? It never fully feels safe. Their amygdala is wired to kind of look for possible threat around disconnection or abandonment all the time. So it's, can be a debil debilitating thing to be in and it really impacts your gut and your body. And I really go into polyvagal and, and the body and how your body responds in connection so that you don't feel crazy anymore and you can start to see this is how you brilliantly adapted and you can heal. Um, yeah. It's also, um, so if you're anxiously attached, and of course there's, there's a spectrum, right? But uh, in relationships, I'm assuming you tend to be more grabbing um seeking uh security the promise seeking safety um clinging onto someone's leg that that kind of behavior right and then if you're with an avoidant um so my partner's an avoidant that only makes uh them run more the other way yeah i really unpack the anxious avoidant dance because mm -hmm. i think when you start to understand the nervous system so the nervous system in an anxious person will go to sympathetic and we'll reach out, we'll want to reach out, we'll get move closer, we might even fight because fight is a hairline trigger. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of coping mechanisms or strategies to get closer to get back into connection, we're avoiding people who usually fear intimacy. Um, they all distance themselves from this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both people, when one person is distancing, and one person is trying to get close are in activated state and are in right they're just states that perpetuate the other person so they're they don't get back into connection as easily because the one thing the avoidant person needs is space to feel safe and the one person the right. is closeness to feel safe and both of those people are just trying to get what they need and it's the very opposite thing that their system needs so once you really start to understand the automatic nervous system and unpack this you start to dialogue with your partner differently. And I have a compassionate way of explaining that in the book. Mm -hmm. Avoiding people get a bad rap when you really understand that their system just needs space to slow down and, you know, work on kind of talking about it differently and giving mm -hmm. to all of that. You can work through the anxious avoidant dance with a lot more success. Um, where does the anxious, anxious avoidance, um, where does that come from? Uh, childhood, I'm assuming, attachment styles early on. Um, is it from parents that didn't give you a lot of emotional milk? Is it, um, how does one grow up and then have a fear of abandonment? So, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to, so a fear of abandonment exists on both sides, but the mm -hmm. way they adapted when they were smaller or different. So someone with anxious attachment had inconsistency. So they had mm -hmm. a so they never feel like they're going to get enough because the shoe always feels like it's going to drop. There are two types of avoidant. There's avoidant and there's avoidant protectors, but a true avoidant does not value mm -hmm. relationships because so when you're born, you're connecting right hemisphere to right hemisphere with your primary caregiver. And a lot of people live more in the left. And mm -hmm. with those children, they didn't get emotionally seen. And so sometimes they give up on relationships and they focus on success or they focus on other things. And when you get really emotional around them because they haven't dealt with the emotions inside and they haven't been mirrored mm -hmm. that way, it can freak them out and they run in the other direction. There can be someone who is more anxious 
um, and has an avoidant protector. What I mean by that is they want closeness um, and they have protectors from avoiding, but they value relationships. So there are different types and there's a spectrum when it comes to avoidance. But the emotional IQ of the parent was more focused on getting things done and relating to the mm -hmm. child with work or to-do lists or just being productive. But right. the emotional, seeing into the child emotionally, so there's an emotional lack thereof. And then that child struggles sometimes with being vulnerable or yeah. their needs are going to be met. Um, so it, it can show up in so many different ways. It's not so black and white um, when you're looking at attachment. And it's also a combination of two people's embedded patterns and how they show up together. What Can I ask you what ethnicity you are? Because I wonder if culture plays a role in um, our upbringing. Because uh, I'm Korean, so my parents being Korean-American came here, you know, uh, immigrants uh, just hustling, 500 bucks, two kids in the 80s. And uh, they're working all the time just to, you know, pay bills. So uh, they were never home. And I wonder how much of their absence. Uh, I always tell people I was raised by pop culture. So I was out skateboarding and chasing girls and trying to be very American. And uh, I didn't get a lot of, um, you know, uh, how are you? You're, you know, you, you're worthy, you're valuable, all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. And that's probably what led you to become a therapist because the value in all of that. But I am, well, I'm American, but my dad, it's funny. So my dad's side is Polish and they were mm -hmm. Polish. And so it's interesting because I'm looking at epigenetics now and studying that, but there's a lot of emotional unavailability on that side. Yeah. That yeah. Has me. And then my mom's um, Italian. Um, my mother, like I said, my mom, my mom's mom was so nurturing. She was like the one very, very secure um, person in my life. But I think I don't know. Your, your mom, your mom loved you through food. <laughs> Amazing food. Not my mom, but my grandmother. But yeah, I think we I don't know how old you are. But I think we I was talking about this to someone the other day, like anyone from like their 30s into their 40s, like our parents valued success. And yeah. I, culture especially in Manhattan where your career was everything and you should be successful right. and you know the messages I got were around success and I achieved a lot of things in my life but often lacked meaning because the meaning really comes from heart to heart connection with people sure. so that sure. was I had to kind of learn later like you can have all the things you want in the world but you still might feel empty if you don't have those mm -hmm. heart to heart connections and community in your life yeah so um if you realize that you have an anxious attachment style and you notice it in relationships um you know your anxiety is produced by feeling uh the, the fear of abandonment and you find yourself clinging and wanting you know texts return instantly and all this kind of stuff um what do you do what do you do if you are anxiously attached what are some steps uh, for anyone listening well, first step is to recognize it and know that if you're texting or you're going through a freak out mode, your nervous system is shifting out mm -hmm. of a of calmness into a sympathetic state, fight, flight, and it can right. be really, really painful. So give yourself grace around your behaviors because your behaviors make sense. Yeah. So, so don't judge yourself. You're not defective. You don't have a problem. You're not quote unquote crazy. Um, this is your wiring and, and kind of like opening up the hood, realizing what's going on inside. Absolutely. And I think mm -hmm. 
get into that place where you want to text or get back into connection, that makes sense. So I think that's the first step. The second step is you can actually trick your brain back into safety with your breath. So, you know, your body, mm -hmm. your body is smarter than your brain and it, it reacts a lot faster. So your diaphragm, if you extend your exhale, mm -hmm. you can send a message up to your brain that you're not actually in threat. And then for a lot of people who are anxiously attached, we didn't get a lot of great co-regulation. So mm -hmm. if you a lot of, and for those who are listening, co-regulation is the ability for your primary caregiver to self-soothe because we're not born with a parasympathetic right. nervous system. So our primary caregiver, if they were anxious, might have not helped us co-regulate as much as we needed. So our mm -hmm. ability to self-regulate is limited. So if you're really struggling, calling a friend or a supportive person that is not going to fix you but help co-regulate with you, meaning just mm. present with you until you can kind of self-regulate. It's co-regulate, but eventually you'll be able to self-regulate because self-regulation is born out of healthy co-regulation. So if you're missing that piece developmentally, you might have to do that with a couple friends and a therapist. You might have to get see, hear someone's tone, follow their eye contact if you're really activated and have another person's nervous system help calm down your nervous system. Them. eventually you'll internalize that and and develop self-regulating abilities but it's the missing developmental link for people who are anxious is they literally can't self-regulate so they try to get back into connection as a way to self-regulate that un unrest or unease or angst that they're feeling when you get to a closer place of secure attachment what does self-regulation look like and i know it looks different it looks different for everyone but uh generally speaking what does that look like so people know okay this is what self-regulation looks like instead of you know code you know i love i write about it in my book and it's a felt sense that is hard to put into words but i talk about internal and i talk about so we internalize our primary the essence um when we're really young and that creates mm -hmm us as adults we can choose to bring really secure people into our life and whether it's therapists co coaches friends when we start to internalize that support we can resource them from within so i call it mm -hmm. so even though a client might not be with me they might have been with me for three years that they can imagine me on the foot of their bed or what they might i might say to them or what it feels like to be around the most nervous person ever so the the neuro the neuro wait a minute the, the foot of their bed that's kind of strange maybe the angel on their shoulder the foot of their bed that sounds like a like a ghost you wake up and there's a ghost on the foot of your bed um i, I, I know what you're saying <laughs> i had a client who was suffering once and she's like jess i imagined you there with me and i imagined you doing this to me like just oh got it got it got it imagined my essence being comforting like comforting her and yeah actually it's so hard to explain but we can pull in the people that we love but again sure. we experience enough of it extract yeah. in order to bring it in internally and this actually builds more security we don't feel as alone in the depth of our abandonment wound when we can in that sensation also hold the like kind of blend it with the feelings of being supported so it's not that we get a we get rid of the abandonment wound it's like we can resource more in that moment um which builds the more the security D does that make sense yes and it reminds me uh and by the way um none of my clients want to imagine me 
at the foot of their bed. But uh, uh, this reminds me of how important it is because a lot of people think therapy is just about like, you know, advice or the surface conversations. But um, what you're talking about is the actual relationship, what you have with your client um, becomes a safe space and how that carries outside of the room, you know? Um, so if you can establish a really healthy, uh, safe, co-regulating relationship with your therapist slash counselor, um, then in real life, as you get activated, um, as you, you know, kind of uh, fall into fight or flight, you can co-regulate just by um, almost like channeling or imagining or seeing um, your, your therapist there, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it starts with sometimes I'll hear a client say, I imagine what you might have said to me in that moment. Mm, right, right, right. To go even further than that, what I might say to you, how it might feel to have me there, like the mm -hmm. S. And then it's not just your therapist. It's any safe person. You can start to resource a whole community of people. Mm. Sometimes you have to start with a therapist and, you know, through meeting with someone or having a really close friend or someone really nurturing in your life through being around that, that their nervous system, which is in ventral and their caring and nurturing support. Eventually you start to internalize that. And so you can resource anyone, but they have to be nurturing kind. You have right. to trust that they have your best interest at heart. There has to be inherent trust in that relationship. So you can start to resource them. Hey, let me ask you this. If you're anxiously attached, um, can you mistake dysfunction for chemistry? Can you, um, when you're dating someone, uh, you know, the whole people look for the lightning in the bottle, um, how much of that is dysfunction if you are anxiously attached? Like if you're really anxiously attached, you know what I'm saying? How much of the sticky uh, or you chasing after the avoidant can be mistaken for chemistry? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, there's no, that's like an and but question. I believe you attract people for, we have an energetic blueprint that we put out there and mm -hmm. we'll play out our deep core wounds with the people that we attach to deeply. Sure. We'll show up regardless. But if you are someone who identifies as having anxious attachment and you're out there dating, for example, and you get excited because someone doesn't respond, someone mm -hmm and then shows up someone shows some inconsistency in their um kind of how they're interacting with you and you want to prove your worth or you get more excited by right. the consistency there's a sign that um that could be a very big red flag because yes you really want consistency in all your relationships as much as possible and especially your romantic relationships if you get excited by chasing someone there's a good chance anxiously attached you're also unavailable yourself yes and also on the flip side if you get turned off because someone is actually calling you back right that yeah. you may be you may be losing an opportunity uh for something healthy healthy there or labeling it as you know uh not you know boring flat not the one or whatever um, and then, by the way, I have a problem with the one, but um, because uh, the, the person is, is actually giving you attention and, and calling you back.
Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that that's a fear of intimacy. So I think a lot of people, because anxious people are also avoiding the fear of abandonment, but sometimes they're also avoiding intimacy as well. They're just not aware of it. So when someone approaches you who's calm and consistent and available, there's no charge, there's no familiarity, yeah. there's no internal pairing to get worked out in that relationship. So there can be, it can feel boring. And, right. you know, it's not that that person is wrong or right for you. It's just that you want to stay away from people who feel exciting for the wrong reasons. Right. Right. I, I used to think that, um, uh, the, uh, the feeling dopamine I got from, um, holding onto someone's leg and if uh, they go down, I go down with them and all of these very romantic, you know, we're in this together and this, uh, this thing that causes, you know, enmesh enmeshments, right? Like I used to think that was me being a hopeless romantic. And then I realized later, Oh, it's actually me uh, swinging toward an anxious attachment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard because I think that we want to hold space for our partners, but there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. I've learned even as a therapist, but also in my relationships, like it's not loving to like go there with your partner and become their energy. And a lot right. of people are very sensitive and we can tap into other people's energy. It's loving to go there with your partner and keep yourself intact. But with mm -hmm. anxiety, self-abandon so when they're born part of their adaptive strategy is i'm going to become hypersensitive of what's going on with my primary caregivers so that i can attune to them so i can get my right. so there's a there's a self-abandonment that happens as an adaptation it's quite brilliant but then as an adult it can be confusing because sometimes you can tell what your partner is feeling more than what you can tell what you're feeling so you can get lost in the relational energy and essentially self-abandon your own personal energy. And so those are internal boundary system issues that happen because early on you adapted by really being sensitive to what was going on in your environment and you disconnected to survive. And you just kind of want to try and be aware if that's happening in your relationship and you're disconnecting from self in order to survive, it's actually going to hurt the relationship. But a lot of this happens unconsciously. Yeah, yeah. I love what you said um, as a uh, radar, something to look out for when you notice uh, yourself abandoning yourself. I think that's a really good sign um, to kind of check in and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's so multi-layered because we want to be there for our partners. We love our partners so much. We see their wounded little little me and we want to help and, and we, we can help them, but we don't have to lose ourselves in the process. And I think that's a learning process for most people. It's, how to, it's actually how we help them is not losing ourselves, but remaining present. Yeah. And not how we're wired because of how we adapted. We tend to lose ourselves and not remain present, which then you have two people in kind of a regress state rather than an adult and holding space for someone else who's suffering. Two questions. One, um, I have a lot of clients and, and people follow me who are single. Um, I wrote a book called Single on Purpose because uh helped a lot of people, mostly women who uh, were generally happy in their lives. They were successful, except uh, they didn't have a partner and they felt, you know, the their ticking clock and, you know, the pressures to find the one. And so they were unhappy 
they didn't allow themselves to be happy until they found someone, right? So their happy was contingent. It was tied to something else outside of self. For these people, what would you say, especially today with uh, toxic swipe culture and we've become baseball cards on dating apps, what do you say to someone who's generally, you know, doing okay, they've got a great job and they're successful and everything's good, except they haven't found their person and because of that, they are miserable? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really great question. Um, so everybody's different, but we are biologically wired to be in connection. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we have to be in romantic connection. If we are in very deep connection and have a lot of community, you might be fulfilled enough. But it's completely mm -hmm. normal to want a partner and to share sure. life with a partner. And so both are true. But if you're in deep connection and you're in deep community, you necessarily might not be miserable because you're right. so well right. that you're feeling supported enough until the right partner shows up. And then that partner doesn't become your world. They integrate into your mm. established community and world. So if you're really miserable and everything in your life is quote unquote going fine and then you the one and that becomes the world, which is normal, Okay, like losing yourself in the beginning is a little bit normal, but if that mm -hmm. is too off balance and you don't have the support and the connections outside of that, then you place a lot of um, emphasis on the relationship or you might overcompensate in that relationship. That relationship holds so much power, you might lose yourself. Mm -hmm. The trick is, and I think falling in love, I think you do lose yourself a little and that's kind of normal, but to have that community and that support and feeling fulfilled in your life through deep connections, whether it's your girlfriends or your guy friends or your family or your people at your job that are really connected to you, really care about you, to have those relationships intact and then integrating the new relationship when it comes, it's not going to feel like this desperate hole you're filling. It's going to be right. adds to my life. They aren't my whole life. Yeah, a lot of singles build this community or, you know, friendships and, and, and build this uh, life. And then when they find someone, they ditch that life <laughs> and then jump to the island with this other person. Uh, so I like what you're saying, integrating someone new into the life that you've already built, um, which has legs, right? And then it's not all about just the love. Because then what happens is people start putting so much weight on uh the relationship or the potential of a relationship and then if that doesn't work out there's a steep cliff they fall off of right yeah and i would say that biologically it's normal to narrow in in the beginning when you're dating yeah. somebody you're both sure. other you're supposed to spend time with mm -hmm. the person um and so it's normal to lose yourself a little but the thing is then life starts to happen again and the integration happens so it's not that you don't go off on this wonderful bubble, right? But it's that 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 bubble, it, before the bubble, there's also that support system. And as that kind of, you move out of the first phase of the relationship and you transition back, that the integration of your whole life and your hobbies, they're also there and they come back. Because someone with an abandonment wound who then goes into the bubble, right, with someone and mm -hmm. then lets that person goes back to work or just starts to disengage, all of their anxious attachment is going to start to surface. So it's really important to have that secure base, even if you lose yourself a little in the beginning, because biologically, that's kind of normal. 
to get back to balance and keep doing the other things that you know you need in your life because we need community. And often yeah. what I happen is people are in relationship and they start to place the need for community on their partner. When right. they're in a healthy community and then their partner becomes fills that need too and then they're not getting enough of other connections in their life. Yeah, that's such a great point. And especially today, where everyone is just kind of, um, you know, doing this virtual. Uh, and I think it's still real, but it's not as um, effective. Nothing's effective as, uh, you know, in person. The yeah, in -person. there's a double-edged sword. I think through COVID, um, it's been a game changer. And it's been a game changer for me because I help people all over the world now virtually. And I think right. the tone, you can still connect. But it does take away from that, the the person to person interaction, which is so much more potent. And I think you need both. You know, it's great. Yeah. I hate to see people rely on this alone because it's it's not enough. It just isn't enough. Yeah, and I gotta say, uh, it is hard to make friends as adults. We don't have the structure of recess and prom and all these events that was very kind of plug and play and baked into our lives as kids. So being social was a lot easier. Although, of course, there were the people were also mean, you know, in high school too. But um, the ability to build uh, friendships and all that—it was a lot easier. And now, as adults, you know, we're just kind of in sweats in our homes and accessing people uh, virtually. So you do have to put effort. You do have to get out of the house, get out of your head, uh, go meet up with people that have common interests. Use the gym. Use yoga class. Go create this community. Um, as Jessica's saying, it's so important. Uh, it's just part of our, our biology. So it's not an opinion. That's going to help tremendously. Okay, the second question is this. Uh, what is the flag that you're waving these days? The what? So the, what's the flag <coughs> that you're waving these days? Meaning, sorry, I'm all messed up. Um, <clears throat> what's your message on the billboard? Uh, so the, And I know it changes, right? So for me these days... Um, all parts of your story will be used. It's something that resonates with me a lot, um, enough to possibly get a tattoo of it. What, what would be, for you, the flag that you're waving these days, the message? I have two, and I unpack mm -hmm. it. Uh, connection is our biological imperative. Mm, and nice. sensation is the language of the body. And sensation really mm. is embedded things in our body and and who understands embedded trauma or embedded sensations that sensation in your body is your body speaking its wisdom and mm. biological imperative we are hardwired evolutionally growing then we can see through evolution that we are meant to be in connection in safe connection in eventual state and that is a place when we're open and we feel being ourselves and we feel supported and so connection is so important Yes. Um, I love what you said earlier that uh, your body is smarter than your brain or your mind or something like that you said. And, uh, I, you know, people, we don't hear that. We don't believe that. We think that our intelligence is all up here. And so listening to your body because your body knows things, I think that's really um, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our body... It, it is a lot faster in terms of neuroception, in terms of picking up things, in terms of storing memory. It also has memory centers. 
And, um, you know, it's funny because our left hemisphere thinks a certain way. Our right hemisphere is more in, connects us, is more the embodied part of us that connects. Not that we use both. They're like two people up there constantly exchanging. But the embodied, you know, the embodied brain is the brain connected to the body. And the body is always 80% up, sending mm -hmm. messages up to the brain and the brain is processing at a slower rate so something you can feel a sensation in your gut or in your body it's going to send that information upwards and then your brain's going to make up a narrative and mm. some narrative is completely off base it's just your yeah. brain makes sense of these sensations and sometimes those sensations are implicit wounds or memories stored in your body so it's confusing but your body um, really has a lot of the information in it yeah, and maybe uh, and this I don't know if it's true, but what I feel like saying is that uh, our thinking can be distorted. A lot of it is, um, but the sensations in our body is pure. It's not distorted. It's truth. True. It's honest. Well, it's interesting because that's uh, intuition sometimes comes from the body. But if you have stored trauma in your body, mm. this can be going off and they can be trauma reactions so it gets a little tricky it's not so black and white. Right. um the body will sense that something's off um and sometimes something is off but it's really activating a, that something has been off like this before in a big way so it's well then, well then your body's saying that something is off that's the message that's true yeah not so much the, the thing not the not the offness <laughs> Right, and it's like, so if, if, if we were talking and something came up for me and my body was sending me a message, it's not so much that something's off with you, it's that my body's sensing something is dangerous because mm. I've experienced this before. So I wanna mm -hmm. get with what it is that it's coming up for me, see if it has old roots in it. So it's not, Sometimes our body is literally telling us that something's wrong and something is wrong, but usually we're aware of it because there's a stored memory that this doesn't feel right before. And so you also want to be aware of that. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, we're going to end with a lightning round. And by the way, I have never done this before. This is, I don't have questions. I'm going to make them up as I go. Um, my whole thing is driving the bus or building the bus while you're driving it. So I don't even know what I'm going to ask you. Uh, but I just kind of, I just made it up and now I'm leaning into it. Okay. And then after the lightning round, uh, you're going to tell us where we can get your book and, and, uh, you know, hang out with you and all of that. Okay. Ready? Uh, I'm just going to say what five questions. Biggest turnoff. Oh God. Um, someone <laughs> bragging about their money. Yes. Biggest turn on. Someone being kind and empathetic. Mm. Definition of love. It's a verb. It's something that even when, mm. but I mean, it's always there. Sometimes it's protected, but it's an action that you do because mm -hmm. you see a whole person and you just are honoring that. Or it's a feel. It is a feeling, but it's also an action. It's a favorite food. Sushi. Oh yeah. That's very on the high on list for me too. Uh, and the final question is, what's one thing that you know about yourself that you didn't know recently? So not like grade school, high school, just in the last couple of years, one revelation you've had about yourself that you didn't have before. I still have healing to do. I'm always mm -hmm. healing. 
just recently I've touched some things where I'm like, wow, I have to heal this part of my inner child. And, you know, I mm. wrote a book about it. I counsel, counsel so many people about it and I'm still always in my own work. And I think yeah. it's always coming. And I think you're not being honest if you don't really honor, you know, like I'm a human being as much as I'm a therapist and I'm always in some kind of healing label uh, layer that keeps me pretty humble. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for talking about this really important topic. Your book is titled, do you want to hold it up real quick? Anxiously, Anxiously Attached. Attached. Yep. More Secure in Life and Love. Where can we find it? Everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, a lot of the independent stores. Um, yeah, you can find it anywhere. I've been getting really great feedback. I'm mm -hmm. so excited to have it out in the world. And I can't thank you enough for going live with me and helping me get the message out there. Of course. And where can we find you? Across the board on social? Yeah, Jessica Baum, LMHC is my um, Instagram name. My company name is BeSelfFull.com. So it's www.BeSelfFull. So it's S-E-L-F-F-U-L-L.com. So you can find um, me there. I have a team of coaches and therapists that help with attachment style issues. And we're just really passionate about helping people get towards more earned security. So it's great. I love it. Thank you for all your work and uh, be well. You too. Thank you. Uh -huh. Bye. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordo, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.